Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fucking ears? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. WTF. My podcast. Thank you for coming. If you're new here, welcome. If you've uh, been here before, welcome back. If you're leaving right now, see you later, fucker. It's all right. It's okay. I get it. Maybe fast forwarding up to the uh, interview. Whatever you want to do, it's really okay with me. As I detach more and more from what I think your expectations to be, I, uh, I find freedom in that. But nonetheless, today on the show, I have the um, Mike Binder, the comedian, filmmaker, actor, and now uh, author of a, uh, he's written a new thriller. You know, I, I gotta, I'll tell you about Binder. He just wrote a book. He wrote a thriller called Keep Calm. It's available everywhere tomorrow. February 2nd, a thriller. But this guy was a comic, and he's one of the reasons why I actually, not that I started doing comedy, but I love comedy. If that makes, I'll, I'll try to explain that in a, in a minute. Let me see let's see if I can get some other business out of the way. Well, as some of you know, uh, Louis C.K. did an amazing thing. He, he, uh, he did something that, there's a few amazing things about what he's done with his new uh, piece of work. Horace and Pete's. This is a downloadable um, piece of, uh, what would you even call it? Uh, it's definitely not a television show because he has um, brought new definition to uh, you know what is possible through self-producing and through uh, internet um, distribution. Well, here's what happened. A couple weeks ago, Louie was in town. He was here to, uh, for the uh, Television Critics Association thing out in Pasadena. Uh, he was here with Zach, and uh, he came over, and we didn't get on the mics. We just went out, and we had something to eat, and we sat in here and talked for about two hours about this thing he was doing that I had to be sworn to secrecy about. You can go to louisck.net uh, and download Horace and Pete, and it all takes place on one, you know, one or two sets. It's in a bar, but here's the beautiful thing about it. Everybody was running around going, what's Louie going to do now that he's not doing the show? What's he going to do? Well, he sort of compulsively created... This very dark but beautiful series that when you watch it reads like a stage play. It stars Alan Alda, Steve Buscemi, Edie Falco, Jessica Lange, Stephen Wright. Kurt Metzger is fucking genius in it. Fucking Kurt, Nick DiPaolo's there. 
but he told me about this whole thing where he just self-financed this uh, this project. You know, he got all these amazing talents to work for for whatever they're working for. He reached out to a bunch of people. He, uh, you know, he he found out Paul Simon was a fan of his, and he he met with Paul Simon, and Paul Simon agreed to do the the song for it. It was so beautiful. He's sitting here. He's like playing me the theme song of Horace and Pete. He's like, "Who is that?" And I'm like, "Oh fuck, I know that voice." And, and it's like, "Fucking Paul Simon, it's Paul Simon." But anyways, we talked for for like an hour, over an hour, about this thing, about how it all came together, off mic. And then the fucker, we get up. He's like, "Oh, we really should have recorded that." Yes, we should have. Because the story of how Louis self-produced and kept secret an incredibly dark, sort of undefinable project. I mean, it's almost like an O'Neill play. It's like, uh, it's like theater. It's shot on a soundstage and uh, there's no audience and it's full of dramatic pauses. It's not you know, necessarily funny all the time. Alan Alda is doing something that I've never seen him do. And it's all written by Lou. And it's just Louis executing the Louis vision in a completely unfiltered way, but in a completely uh, structured way like I've never seen him do before. And, uh, you know, it's, it's weird what, when you have a friend, and we are friends, who, you know, is possessed by a certain genius and gets things done. So that's the difference between people who accomplish things and, and, and people who, who get upset about people who accomplish things or who, who uh, chip away at people who accomplish things. That's what they put their energy into, is uh, people who accomplish things accomplish things. They set their mind to something and they do it. They harness their creativity. They harness their passion. They, they harness their, uh, their instincts and they understand their limitations and work within them to create things. And then there are people. There are people out there that, that don't do that but still demand attention, demand to have a voice. What was amazing to me was that Louis... Just completely, just fuck, fuck Twitter, fuck it. Got off because you know he understood the vortex of it. He understood his own compulsion around it, as I do. But I can't get out of it just yet because, <laughs> because you know I'll kick tomorrow. But it takes it, you know it. You really have to make a choice not to be a maggot among maggots, you know, ferociously feeding on the corpse of culture. Just the fucking monsters out there. It's just like I. I guess my point is. Louis is a fucking doer and he's inspired and he's a fucking genius. And it's always amazing to see a genius do what they do on their own terms. And I think if you go watch this Horace and Pete thing, you'll be like, what the fuck is it? Doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's beautiful on a lot of levels. It's something completely unto itself and it's uh, released completely in its own world. It's something that uh, he is solely responsible for and nobody else uh, got involved with it. And it, it, it involves an amazing uh, ensemble of talent and an amazing uh, ensemble of what seems to be uh, lighting and camera operators and art deck. But it's like, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. And it just, it's, it's just Louis once again kind of uh, breaking the mold, shifting the paradigm, showing people what they can do if they just let their creativity fucking just let it roll. So... I'm, this is not a paid plug. This is a friend plug because I got so fucking excited when I was talking to him. Like I was beside myself that he had done this amazing thing and then I, then I, and then I couldn't say anything about it, which isn't that big a problem. I don't talk to many people, but I couldn't wait for it to be released because how often does somebody do something that nobody knows anything about with that amount of talent and that amount of production? It was just fucking spectacular. Anyways... I loved it.
it's uh, it's powerful. It's dark. It's moving. It's multi-leveled. It's theater. It's fucking theater. Louis C.K. now can add playwright, as far as I'm concerned, to his uh, long resume. So check that out. Again, not a sponsored plug. Friend plug. I wish we would have fucking recorded the stories he told me in making that thing. But anyways, check that out. Horace and Pete. Go to louisck.net. Mike Binder. Mike Binder's coming. I can't, like, this is one of those people that, you know, many of you might not know. Um, but I was fucking dying to talk to him. When I was a kid and I watched the stand-up shows, Mike Binder was this young guy, almost looked like a kid. He had his hair combed over, his blonde hair. He looked like he was like 20. And he did, he was hilarious. He was a hilarious comic. I still remember the bits. You know, a day at Disneyland. And also, like, I, so I remember one thing I saw him do. He grabbed a, a camera from someone in the audience, took a picture of his crotch, and he said, explain that to the guy at the drugstore. And uh, he, he made me want to do comedy. Mike Binder. And then when I got to the comedy store, he was this mythic guy there. Like, he, you know, he hadn't been there in years, but he was like the golden boy. He was like the, the you know, he was Mitzi Shore's pick to be the next big comedy star. He was at the comedy store when he was 20. I don't know how old he was, maybe in his teens, 22, way back when the original crew was there. He got all fucked up on drugs and pulled out. But, you know, he went on to make uh, pretty amazing movies. Uh, Coupe de Ville, Crossing the Bridge, Indian Summer, Blank Man. The Mind of the Married Man on uh, HBO was his creation. The Upside of Anger was his movie. Uh, Rain Over Me was his movie. Um, but he, you know, he was one of those guys that during the beginning of the independent movie thing, he was a guy making, writing and making his own movies. And now he's writing thrillers. But to me, he was this young guy who did these, who was hilarious. So to get the whole story from Mike uh, was really a treat for me. So let's go now. Uh, to my conversation with Mike Bob. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Finder. I've, I've wanted to have you on for a long time because uh, I think, I, if I'm really remembering, I think you were one of the first guys I saw do stand-up on television. Oh, really? Is that possible? Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I started really young. I was on... I was, television when i was 18 years old really? so what year would that have been jesus that like 77 no 77 77 yeah probably. so i would have been like 14 yeah so i was 18 you're only that you're only a few years older than me yeah but i was 18 when i was on the tonight show and merv griffin and, right and i feel like it was merv griffin yeah i was on that i was on that about seven or eight times you know a day in disneyland that's right yeah <laughs> 
That's right. And I, I know that you, I, when I talked to you on the phone, that you were nervous that I would get hung up on the stand-up because it's so long ago. Well, no, it's not that. It's just that, you know, the people that are into the comedy store and the comedy right. store scene are so into it. And it's like, for me, it's such a small part of my life. Right. Because you got to I got there when I was 18 and I was gone when I was 26, you know? Right. So, so it was like- Out of stand-up. Yeah. So it was like- it was it was an extended college for me, you know right. what I mean? And, yeah. And uh, no, I wasn't completely out of. I, I was I was out of the comedy store when I was about twenty six, and I was out of stand up probably when I was about twenty eight or twenty nine. You know, well, it what, just it became one of those things where you know how many things can you do? You know? Right. But let's let me just track it. So where'd you grow up? Detroit. In in the city, in the city of Detroit, Seven Mile in Libanois, yeah. And what was that? What, was I lived it? I lived a block from Baker's Keyboard Lounge, which was the world's oldest jazz club. But when I was a kid, I would drive my bike through the alley, and then one day I remember seeing that the, the marquee said "Comic Lenny Bruce." Come on! And I said to my dad, and I was this was, you know, I was this was probably sixty three, sixty four, so I was only five years old, right. you know, yeah. Six years old, and uh, I said, "What is a comic, Lenny Bruce?" Yeah, he, he said that means comic. Yeah, and this guy's name is Lenny Bruce. I go, well, "What is a comic?" He said, "It's a guy who stands on stage and tells funny jokes." Yeah, and I went, "Oh, I want to do that." <laughs> that was <laughs> and, it. And, yeah, no, my dad told me that story. He said he goes, "Okay, that's what I want to do." Uh huh. And then, um, but Detroit was a great place to grow up. You what know? kind of? What was your? What was your dad's business? My dad was a builder. Yeah, he was a builder, and he was a home builder, and he, he ended up doing very well. You know, he was from poor Russian family, then, and he ended up, you know, working through the the, the his, generations of Detroit, and 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 did very well. His your grandparents were uh, Russian immigrants, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Jewish. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean that's uh, I I don't know why I assume that, but I always assume that. Yeah. With comedians. Yeah. Okay. It's a and, Jewish thing. And, and you know, the, I mean, nobody in my world or my family was in show business. Right. But my parents liked it. I'll tell you, my, my there was a thing called the Children's Orthogenic School, which was like for underprivileged uh, kids who who had mental deficiencies. Right, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, my parents became the fundraisers and they would put on a big show every year for the Children's Orthogenic School at Ford Auditorium, and they would bring in the guests. Yeah. So this was 69, 70, 68 in yeah. that area. And this was in another era of show business because like one year, Sonny and Cher were the headliners. Really? Yeah, and they were, they had their own sh network show. Variety show. And my mom and my dad and I picked them up at the airport. I mean, this wasn't limos and all that. And I don't know if that was just Detroit, but, right. but they didn't seem... Oh, you're picking us up, you know? Right. So we pick him up. And Sonny was from Detroit, so he was really excited to be there. And we, we drop Cher at the Pontchartrain Hotel, and, and my mom and her go up because my mom wants to see all her wigs or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And my dad and Sonny and I go to a place called Detroit Coney, Lafayette Coney Island, downtown Detroit, yeah. which is... Sonny has to have a Coney, which any Detroiter understands. It's a dog. What is it, a hot dog? Yeah, it's a chili dog with yeah. mustard, chili, and yeah. onions. And Sonny looks out the window. There's construction in the middle of the street, downtown Detroit. And he gets out, and a guy comes out of the sewer. And Sonny yells, 
Uncle Davy. <laughs> and Sonny goes in the middle of the street and hugs this guy that just came out of the sewer. It's his uncle. <laughs> and and it, so, so, I mean, so I was, and we brought in That's a good Steve story. Lawrence and Edie Gourmet with their opening act was Richard Pryor. Really? And uh, who bombed horribly and said all the did all these retarded kid jokes that oh really oh no he got himself in a lot of trouble you, you saw that oh yeah i was there i went to the airport what and were you like back. 11 or 12 that yeah, was probably uh 11 at that time so was he he wasn't quite the the richard prior no he was total know. unknown he right. was he was he was an opening act for steve lawrence and he right. or may and he was felt horrible and he had bombed and we i remember driving him in the car with him and uh but so Early on, I kind of sensed that people in show business were different and unique, and yeah. I liked how important they were to my parents. You right. Know? And and um, how many family? How many kids in your family? There were four boys. Yeah, four boys. And then uh, my dad remarried, and I had two stepsisters. So they got divorced. Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was young. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And did you, you did you stay in touch with everybody, or you have good relationships? I can with get both any of them? of them on the phone right now. I swear. <laughs> It will not be a problem. <laughs> All my brothers and, and sisters Are pick you the up the oldest? phone for me. No, I'm the sec. Um, in, in the larger family, I'm the third. So, but in the in in, the, in between my brothers and I, I'm the second. So when did you decide to do? Uh, I mean, comedy. If you started that young, oh, I was doing I was doing stand up in high school, and and I would go up to Ann Arbor and play clubs uh, called the Pretzel Bell and the. I mean, I and there was a place called the Delta Lady in Ferndale, Michigan. No comedy clubs yet at this time. No, there were no comedy clubs. I, the fact, the first comedy club, the first real comedy club was in Detroit at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle, which yeah. I'm sure you know of. I, I, I don't know it. No, it's, it's been there forever. It's but that, still there? That was the first, no, listen, in the big cities, there were the showcases. Right. You know, uh, Catch Rising Catch Star. Catch and yeah. the Comedy Store and the Improv and up in New San Francisco, you could go up and you can get on at the Holy, Holy City, City Zoo. Zoo yeah. But there hadn't been places that put th uh, you know a headline comic right. and really made exist. a night of comedy. And, right. And we were all, all of us, Shandling, Gallagher and Bruce Baum, and we were all on a show called Make Me Laugh. Right. Which came out at the perfect time. It was a syndicated show and it was... It it came out at eleven p.m. at a time when everyone was tired of the news. Yeah, it was right before yeah. the Iranian hostage situation. Yeah, and nobody watched the news for about a year. It was just uh, people. So this there was this eleven o'clock strip show, and it was a big hit. Bobby Vance, right? Bobby Van, Bobby Van, Van, Bobby yeah. Van. And, and so Mark Ridley, this guy in Detroit, had the idea. He called me. He said, "Look." Why don't I do a club where you know you come in and then I'll have a couple two locals open for you and it'll be a comedy club just like the comedy store only right. not without fifteen guys in a night yeah you know and then it there was one in Cleveland a guy named Dino Vance uh, and a couple got Dino Vince and a couple guys opened the Cleveland Comedy Club and then it started to take off you know there was. Uh, 
Columbus and Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Comedy Club, which was managed by a guy named Jimmy Miller, who ended up becoming sure. a huge Dennis's man, brother. Dennis's brother, yeah. And Dennis used to open for me in Columbus at in Cleveland at the Cleveland Comedy Club, which, in fact, that was Dennis's first road gig. When he's a prop act, he was a huge prop act, <laughs> and we used to tease him about it. He'd, you know, it would take thirty minutes to set that damn act up, you know, and, I, and then he does it for fifteen minutes. <laughs> And um, but but he uh, his first road act was opening for me, and then he, he opened for Coulier for a week. You know. So when you started doing it when you were like sixteen or whatever, you, you were you doing dinner clubs? You opening for musical acts? No. When I first started, I would go into jazz clubs because right. that's what I read that Lenny Bruce used to do. Well, so see, I, who were your heroes at that time? Who, uh, who were you watching? Woody Allen. Right. Woody. I wanted to right. be Woody Allen my whole. You life. had that record, you know. I yeah, did too yeah, when I was younger. Loved it. The stand-up years. The stand-up record is amazing. Yeah, it I was shot amazing. a moose. I shot a moose. Yeah, and the moose ate the Berkowitzes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, so we uh, we would go. I would go in. I would take a friend jazz of mine, clubs. and we would go to a jazz club, and we'd say, "Hey, I'm a comedian." Yeah, and this was. And you there were no comedians at this time. This right. was in between. This is right before Steve Martin took off nationally. And it was in between Klein and Carlin and Cosby, and stand-up comedy had died. Right. It just there were there was it was there was a rumbling of it I didn't know of, or I became aware of in New York with the Catch a Rising Star, the, with the Richard Lewis and the Ed Bluestones yeah. and and the David Brenner and that. But it, it Ed really, Bluestone, I haven't heard that name yeah, in a while. Yeah. Yeah, and the improv was there right. too. So, so I would say, "Can I go on?" And they'd say, "Yeah, you're a comedian. What the hell is that?" And, <laughs> and the audience didn't know how to react to me, you know. And some nights I'd get them, and some nights I wouldn't. Well, you were like seventeen. I was seventeen. They must have been like, "What's this kid doing yeah, up here?" Yeah, yeah. No, it was fun. And sometimes they'd heckle me. One guy said, "You're about as funny as my middle leg," you know. <laughs> just middle leg. You know, it just like it was like. And then I'd be downtown Detroit. That's when I when I really started to get funny. Yeah, was when I'd be downtown Detroit playing to all black audiences, and I would go, you know, okay, a little white boy here. To, it's yeah. time for a little white boy to teach you guys what funny is, <laughs> right? <laughs> Record scratch, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. And um, but it was good, you know. I ended up getting. I, I I would always go on stage to these all black audiences, and they'd be like you know we're going to eat you alive right it's hard and i'd always end up get a huge applause at the end because they'd go he got us you know and he worked his ass off that's amazing yeah because it's a it's it's a it's a different type of uh room you better show up you better do the job oh yeah yeah and and i was able to really just you know i was disarm them it was so different and and i did a lot of jokes about being downtown detroit from the suburbs yeah and, yeah and uh you know uh, but it was fun, and then uh, at a certain point, I just as soon as I graduated high school, I left. I drove out to California, you know. Yeah. And and, uh, and I, you know, I I ended up at the at the comedy store, you know. And I spent. I had what year was that? Must have just been what seventy seven. Oh, okay. 70. So it'd be, she'd been at it for about four years. Yeah, three or yeah. four years. But it was still the original crew. Yeah, they were the old guys. You know, I was like a. I was like the the, the freshman when when Robin Williams, uh, Robin McClorum, you know, when I first saw him. Really? And he was also from my hometown. So Robin was? Yeah, Birmingham, Michigan. You know, so I, we had a lot in common, and and he had an, his he didn't always go by Robin Williams. No, first it was Robin McClorum. That was his real name. Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, 
and uh, and, and who else David was Letterman was around. He was a big bearded guy, and and uh, and George Miller and and uh, Tom Dreesen and Elaine Boozler and Ed Bluestone. And yeah, that was the crew. Ollie then. And Joe. I, and I, well, yeah, but Ollie Joe at the time when I first got out here wasn't quite a comedian yet. He was just Ollie Prater. Yeah, and he was the doorman, and he wasn't funny. And one day, one day he put a cowboy hat on and became Ollie Joe Prater and got funny, you know? <laughs> so he was just a door guy. Yeah, he was just a door guy. And I was a door guy. That was my job. Well, that's I was a door guy for a year. Yeah, I was there a was door a guy. system in place. My favorite story is I'm sitting, standing in front of the Westwood Comedy Store one night. We had just booked a sit, you know, sat the Saturday show was packed. Yeah. And a little car pulls up. A little bumbling guy gets out of the passenger seat. He says, there's a table for Neil Israel and his name is at the door. And he's drunk out of his mind. He's just saying what he was told to say. I go, excuse me? Goes, there's a table for Neil Israel and his name is at the door. And I realize it's Ringo Starr. <laughs> oh and he's drunk out of his mind. Right. So we seat him. And he, way at the back, this yeah. table with him and Neil Israel and their wives, and he starts to heckle the shit out of David Letterman, right. a young David Letterman. Yeah. And Letterman just chews the guy up, chews the guy up, and they, the audience doesn't know that he's Ring, it's Ringo Starr. Does David? No, but he finally, Ringo tells him, Davis Ringo! <laughs> And he goes, Ringo who? Ringo Starr. And I, and they, really? It's Ringo Starr? He goes, so you're going to fuck my career up like you fucked yours up? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and uh, but uh, it was a, it was a great time. You know, again, I was 18 years old and. and uh, what did they call you? They call you. Uh, kid comedy. Kid comedy. And then kid. one night I'm there and Norman Lear comes up to me afterwards. Didn't even know he was there. Yeah. And he said, hey, I want you to call me tomorrow. And it was Norm, Norman Lear at the time was huge, you know. I mean, he was, was Jimmy Walker around then? Yeah, Jimmy Walker was around. He was uh, he was the one guy that was a star. He was the only guy that was a star out of uh, out of that star? young. Right. Yeah, he was. So when he would come in, it would be oh my god. Richard then Richard started coming around again. He had been gone for a few years. Uh huh. When I but after I was there about two years, he started coming back. That must have been amazing yeah, to watch. That was great. Yeah, that was great. That was really special. Did you ever tell him you saw him when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he knew the whole story and he remembered it. Completely. Oh really? And I, yeah, he didn't remember me being in the car. But he remembered the whole night, and and then years later, I I, I has was on this dinner with Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, and right. they remembered it exactly. They were like, "We were so mad at Richie. We were so mad. We we had we we had taken him everywhere, and he just he was horrible that night." And they remember. They, oh, she remembered it. She knew. So I, what happened with Norman Lear? Uh, he told I, you to call? he had me do a pilot. I did a pilot for him called Apple Pie. It was my first, and I'd only been out in town less than a year, and it was a network show that was very short lived. And um, but it, it was with Dick Libertini and Rue McClanahan and Jack Guilford and Dabney Coleman. Wow, it was an incredible. And you were like nineteen. I was probably not nineteen yet. You know. So you're out here in Hollywood, and the comedy store is like in its uh, most exciting time, probably. Jay Leno's around too, I imagine. Yeah, Jay Leno became like my older brother. He was one of my best friends. I, really? I, I, there, after about. And you were a little out of control, right? 
Yeah, and that was the problem. You know, Jay was really, really, really great guy to me, but we had a parting of the ways. And um, But I used to go to his house with him every night after the show, and we'd watch the Tonight Show and whoever was on, yeah. and we'd play Risk, and, and they'd get up in the morning and call him and come over, and we'd hang out all day. And, right. You know, and I got sick. I was I got very sick as a kid. Um, I was doing a lot of drugs, and I was eating a lot of garbage, and I was away from home, and I got a form of colitis. Uh-huh. And Leno took me to the hospital late one night and called my dad, and, you know, I was in the hospital for about three weeks, and he really took care of me and my because my father couldn't come out at the time. Yeah, and uh, they ended up becoming friends. Hit your dad and Jay. Yeah, well, and they, my dad loved old cars and had some old cars. Uh-huh. So whenever he would come to Detroit, my dad would let Jay drive around these, these vintage cars around uh-huh. for his his gigs. You know. Yeah. But and they stayed friends to till the day my dad died, you know. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. But you didn't stay friends with him. Yeah, I did. I just we had a falling out of the ways, you know, f- over the strike, you know. You were there for that? Yeah, I was there for the strike, and, and I just didn't really understand it, you yeah, know. And because you were like eighteen. Yeah, it just it didn't make sense to me. It felt like everybody was just really mean to Mitzi, and and they were playing Bud's Club, and he wasn't paying anything either, right? You know. Yeah. So I was like, oh, and I was at the I was there all day shooting a movie. The other thing is, I got this role in a CBS movie to play F- Alan Bursky in the Freddie Prinze story. Because <laughs> they couldn't get Bursky to play Bursky. <laughs> yeah, I know that's Brisky was always mad about it, but uh, but I made a mistake, you know. I mean, I, I really Jay was such a good friend to me, to mine, and Tom Treason, and I just one night I just went on. I went, this is stupid. Mitzi talked me into it, and I went on, and I remember going outside, and I could just see Leno was so upset. He goes, "They say you went on, but I know you wouldn't do it." I went, "No, I did. I went on. I just think the whole thing's stupid." You didn't quite understand it. I, I made a mistake. You yeah. Know? I mean, it was dumb. It was probably the word, the stupidest thing I ever did in my whole career. Was it was and breaking? It was being a scab? Yeah, and it didn't hurt me my career in any way because that wasn't really show business. Right. That's what what, what people found out either right away or never found out that the comedy store was not show business. It had nothing to do with show business. I remember years later, I was sitting on the set of a movie, and someone from the comedy store called me, and I just realized. They're not. They're, they're not in the business. This is the. the, the you oh, know, it's its own world. You know, but it was stupid of me. You but know? how many people? So they, at that. And t- I also think you know at the time you got to understand my father. You know, was this kind of entrepreneurial Detroit guy who built himself up from nothing, who didn't have any sense of the unions. You yeah. know, I mean, he was not a union guy. Yeah. You know? At the time, in his mind, the unions were destroying Detroit. You right. know, and. So he was like, I'd call him and I'd say, Dad, there's this thing and Jay and Elaine Boozer, they're starting a union and they don't want me. Well, Mitchie's been good to you. I go, I know, I don't know what to do and I'm shooting the movie there. He goes, just fuck these guys. Yeah. Fuck these guys. Yeah. You know, and it was a, you know, he, it was a mistake because he didn't know what he was talking about and, and I should have listened to Jay and Jay was like really good to me. Yeah. He was really, really good to me as a young guy, you know? Yeah. And, um. I mean, we we stayed friends, and I would go on the Tonight Show when he was on, and 
you know, we never we never fought, but you could just see in his eyes he was never as warm to me again. You know, it's interesting because like that that a lot of people don't know about that strike, and I talk about the book a lot. You know, the Nodal Sayer book. You know, I'm dying up here. I never saw it, but you know, it's funny. I know that there were. Pe- I mean, I, I people have told me what's in it. I was. I thought it was a pretty good book. I was. Uh, what have you heard? I don't know. I I, I just. It's all about that. It's about- I, I was in London shooting Upside of Anger, and, and I'd shot like for 18 days, and I promised him I'd do this interview, and I was sitting in Hyde Park for maybe two hours talking to him about a world that I didn't even remember, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember thinking, I, I remember just talking about just the way I'm talking to you about it, like... At the time, it was a big deal, but it was only a big deal to us. Nobody it wasn't like com- comedy was shut down this week. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. uh, day one fourteen in the comedy shut down. No one cared. Well, it was know? just a be- it was just guys trying to get paid, and Mitzi was insisting that it was a workshop and didn't want to pay. Yeah, and in her defense, what it really was, and this is the truth. Although I, I do say that it was stupid to cross a picket line yeah. of your peers, I wouldn't do that today. Yeah. But it was also fueled on by a lot by the guy, all the people that didn't get spots, right? You know, all the people that it was it, in her mind, it was a real meritocracy, and the best comedians got the best spots, right? And there were a lot of people that weren't getting good spots and said, "This is bullshit. We got to bring her down," and they came to hate her, you know. And, yeah. And you know, she said, "I'll pay you guys thirty-five bucks a spot," and. That wasn't good enough, you right. know. They want and, and and Bud. They were striking from Bud's club, and Bud wasn't paying anything either. Right. It, it was just the way it was, and you know, it never bothered me that we weren't getting paid because I felt like it was just high school or just college, and we were getting paid. We we were learning, and yeah. and, and we were going to get paid up the road, and right. and and I felt most of the guy, you know. When let when the strike started, I spoke to Letterman about it, and he was like, "I think it's stupid. I don't think anyone should get paid. This is a showcase." Right. And and it, you know, and Leno was one of the few guys. Leno and Dreesen and Elaine Boozler. Elaine Boozler wanted to be Norma Ray. You know, she it was like a she was very passionate about it. But her those three were the only real working comics that wanted to strike. They. Yes, they wanted to do what was right, but what they really, a lot of them just wanted to tear her down. A lot right. of them, she was a very divisive character. She was, she had her favorites, and if you weren't one of them, you know, you were, she was evil, you know, yeah. which I understand. You know, listen, again, like I say, my thing was, it was a great, you know, it was a great place to have gone through, but you stay there after a while, it, it means you failed. It doesn't yeah. mean you're succeeding. Yeah, it's a little and, dark. Was and, it dark and, back then? Yeah, it was dark. But Jay used to say that to me. He'd say, you know, do you don't understand? The goal is not to get in to the comedy store and be a regular and stay there. The yeah. role, is, the the goal is to get the hell out of the comedy store. <laughs> right. You know, and and a lot of these guys didn't see it that way. And I was really lucky. I was very lucky in the sense that number one, make me laugh took me on the road yeah playing the comedy clubs and also opening for big names in, in, in comics and musicians yeah 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 never for comics opening but i would the... open for 
Kenny Loggins and that was the gig, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was know? no comedy club, so you get on no, those so concerts. I'd be on the road, and you know, I went out on the road with Andy Williams one summer. Really? You know? Yeah, and you know, I think Mitzi used to, used to live in his old house. No, she lived down the street from him. Oh, from Andy Williams, like two houses away. But uh, but so were that, you were you like part of the family though? I mean, Mitzi really took a liking to you. Yeah, you hang yeah. out the house. Yeah. And, who was she dating? Like Steve Landisberg? Steve Landisberg. At the time. Yeah, that's right. And I also took care of Paulie and Peter during the day. It was one of my first jobs. To babysit? Yeah. But again, when you run into any of the shores, when you run into... They talk about the strike as if it was... You know, I had this guy... I'm not going to say his name, but he came over to my office not, and he had wanted to show me old photos and books. And, yeah. And he we changed history. We were at the apex. Do you realize? I, I just, no, we didn't. We didn't. Honestly, I'm sorry. But but the strike, us, that time period. No, it was a, it was, it was the a pinnacle of American comedy. No, no. You know what I mean? Well, you know what the one thing is? Is that the, the door deal in the store in the main room still holds. Oh, so yeah. on a good night, you can make a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It was great, and 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 that actually she she had agreed to do that, but they still wanted to strike. I mean, did, did you know Lebitkin? Yeah, sure. And he was like he was a, a, a an unstable guy, anyways, huh? I never saw it like that. I like, never saw it like that. But obviously, when you jump off a hotel building, you're unstable. <laughs> you know, stable guys actually just check into the hotel and go to sleep. You know, the unstable ones jump off the roof. I mean, especially yeah, especially when you're jumping off because you're not getting spots at the comedy store. Okay? It's a problem. It's All right, you know, I mean, and they wanted to turn Lebetkin into a living legend or a, a, a hero, legend, a, a martyr. Hero. But the fact is, I'm sorry. You yeah. know, you you know when when you know your homeland is taken over, maybe then you light yourself on fire and yeah. you know. But, but when you don't get spots at a local comedy club. It's you know the jumping off a building is a decision you made to end your life, and I'm not going to turn you into any great hero, you know, because sure. you are you're a little unstable, right? And uh, but he was a great guy. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't know him well, but he was always nice to me. But, yeah. But I never saw it as I saw it as like, why would you do that over the strike? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've always felt that. You know, when whenever listen, I've had some suicide in my family. Yeah. You know, and and. The best line when I and there's a great AA line. You kill yourself. You five down five, five you, years. You, you you killed the wrong guy. Yeah, if you kill yourself in the first five years of sobriety, you're killing the wrong guy. Well, Steve Lebedkin, if he had lived four days, he would have realized he killed the wrong guy. Right. You know, the, that was not that. That was not a good reason. You know, sure. unless there was other stuff going on. Right. Which we never know. You yeah. know, when someone kills himself, God bless them, because you just don't know. But so, but but in terms of people were saying he did it to sh shine a light uh -huh. on the injustice at the comedy store. And I was like, that's the wrong light. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, yeah, it haunted that place forever. So you're doing the comedy, you, 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 the make me laugh thing happens, so now you're getting work, you're making a living in show business. Yeah. Can you just substantiate some story? Was there a story where you were on the roof of the comedy store and you pulled a billboard down? Yeah. What was that? That was funny. That was uh, <laughs> there was a guy right across the street from the comedy store. Yeah. Took, one of, it was in a different era. I don't think he could do this anymore. But he bought an ad. It was an actor, and he bought a he bought the billboard of himself. You know, Dan Davis, yeah, actor, yeah. And it was him, and he was in in his head stuck above the billboard, 
and we went out in the middle of the night and we tied a, a rope around his head <laughs> and we sawed it o- the, the head off just enough so that a good tug it would come off and yeah. had the rope across the string and, and and you know had the audience go to the window and we all pulled the rope and just pulled the guy's head right off. You know, it was the billboard just was driving me crazy. I was doing like ten minutes a night on, on the, the fact that a guy look at this guy. I and mean, the original room, you could see it. Out yeah, of the original you could see room, out of the window, window you know. Yeah. And and everybody waiting in line saw it coming in, so they they knew who Dan Davis. Did. And it was a great piece, and it just built to the point where Harris, Pete, and I rigged <laughs> rig, 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 rigged this thing up, and we pulled this guy's from across the street. Yeah, we were, and Bla- Harris, Blake, Clark, and I we we. Climbed up during the day, and you know, thank God one of us didn't fall. You know, yeah, yeah. it was crazy, but but it was a fun time. That was a good performance piece. Yeah, it was great. So when did you like? Because your career is so varied, and 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 you know, you've had a long one, and you've done a lot of amazing things. So when what is that moment like? Where did the cleaning up coincide with not stopping com- with stopping comedy? Yeah, it did. I was playing the clubs and traveling and. And when I was about 25, I, I really, I was doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. And, and <coughs> did, did you know a comedian named Jesse Aragon? I, uh, maybe his picture. Like I knew Harris briefly because I was a doorman in 87. Like I got there like late. So like, yeah, yeah, it, so we, your generation was, was already like a mythology. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you guys established the mythology of the place, but it still sort of operated that way. And Harris was sort of was sort of still around, and Blake was still around, but they were you know in their forties. Yeah. Well, we uh, Jesse Aragon. Jesse got was the first guy that got sober in AA, and and I was in town, and I, I needed some pot or something. Yeah. Well, I am sober. How'd you do that? And he took me to an AA meeting, and I didn't like it. And uh, some guys followed me out and said, "What's the problem?" <laughs> you yeah. know. And I said, "I said, well, first of all, I'm a Jew, and you have your meetings in in churches, right? So we'll start from there. <laughs> Second of all, I'm not really sure. I don't want to smoke pot. I just don't want to drink anymore. Do blow? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But the fact is, it it started to work for me. Yeah. I went started going to these Uncle John's men's pancake house yeah. luncheons on the west side and yeah guys were funny and and i got sober and you know i just went off the road and and uh i was it was all the other side thing that took me away from comedy was the fact that i was getting acting work and i also wrote uh i had done a special for hbo which really cut my ties completely with the comedy store. I did a spe- I did a concert in Detroit with me, Dave Coulier, Paul Rodriguez, and Howie Mandel. So it was a, a, a comedy special. It was called the Detroit Comedy Jam. And it, but it was first it was just a live series of concerts we did which did very well. And you Detroit. produced it? I produced it. I put it all together and, and and hosted it. Yeah. And Chris Albrecht was my agent at the time at ICM. Chris Albrecht, who actually started as a doorman at the Improv That's in right. New York. In New York, yeah. And went I, on to head HBO. Yeah, but he, first he went on to become a, a, an, agent. A, an agent at ICM yeah. and handled a lot of comedians. And I brought him back to show him this big show we did, and and he uh, said, let's do this as a special. And we uh, we it was an HBO special called the Detroit Comedy Jam, and Mitzi was like I, I inv- you're doing that's my shit you're doing. I go what guys at a, with a microphone? I don't understand what <laughs> what part is yours? It's in Detroit. It's yeah. in a concert hall. It's, yeah, 
Well, it's, uh, you shouldn't be a producer. You should just be a comedian and let me produce that. I oh, said, well, okay. And so apparently she hated me for that for a long time. Oh, really? That yeah. was it? Yeah, that was it. And um, That's interesting. So I did this thing called the Detroit Comedy Jam. And then I did the guy that bought the specials from HBO at the time and took them to colleges was a guy. Um, I'm, bumming, I'm bummed that I'm breaking his name because he was such a great guy. But he, he also, he ran Columbia TriStar Home Video. And he would make little independent movies and he made Sex, Lies, and Videotape and oh, yeah. Drugstore Cowboy. Uh-huh. I'm gonna, his name's going to come back to me. I'm just blanking. It was it's one of those brain farts. But anyway, he had sold my special to HBO. I wrote a script called uh, The Bridge. Yeah. Which was me and my friends growing up in Detroit and LA, in, in Detroit and in the in the late, early 70s getting into some trouble it was a real coming of age piece and bobby took it to this guy and um he said i'll, I'll if you want to make it for three million dollars i'll let you make this movie and he gave me three million dollars through bobby newmeyer the guy who did sex lies and videotape yeah and we went to minneapolis and we kind of recreated my childhood yeah and you wrote the script i wrote the script and i directed the movie it was a little three million dollar movie and Josh Charles was the star. He played me, and Stephen Baldwin was in it, and it became Crossing the Bridge, and Touchstone bought it. Disney bought it. Yeah. And that kind of changed my life in the sense that, you know, it was a little movie. It didn't make any money. It got great reviews. Right. But it got me going. You know, I, Jeffrey Katzenberg said, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to do this piece about my childhood at camp up in Canada. Katzenberg and Eisner watched my movie late one night at at Eisner's house and said, this is our childhood. You know, let's buy this. Oh, right. And they bought it. And and then I went into a meeting with them and said, what do you want to do next? I said, I want to do this thing called Indian Summer. And that was a big movie for you. I mean, that was a big movie. It had an amazing cast. Yeah. And And those did well. It was like for... You know, it was like the number two or three movie for two weeks in a row, which at the time was a big deal. It was at a time when Touchstone was trying for a lot of singles and doubles and weren't doing big movies. Right. It was, a, it was a program that they quickly discarded. Yeah. But again, I made the movie for $9 million. It made like maybe $30 million or something for that. How did you get on your feet with all that stuff around you know, directing and, and, and producing? I mean, you just took to it or did you hire good ADs? Who no, guided you, know, you through I, that? I had, I had written this movie called Coupe de Ville. Mm-hmm. That was the other, I skipped that. Uh, so I was cleaned up, stopped doing stand-up. And did you miss it? Not, at first I did, yeah. At first I did, but I didn't want to be in the clubs until I felt right. really good stable. And stable. But I was writing, and I, I always, from day one, I was always writing screenplays. I wrote so many of them, and I wrote this script based on a true story in my family about my dad and his two brothers taking a Cadillac down to Florida. And Larry Bresner, who was Robin's manager, who I knew through Robin, read it and helped me get it made. And he really godfathered my whole career. He really became my mentor. And and he he really, he got the movie made. You know, a guy named Joe Roth directed it, who ended up becoming the big head of the studios. That was Coupe de Ville. That was Coupe de Ville. So I had had a produced screenplay. Right. And then I wrote this other one, which was another three guys in a car. Stephen Baldwin, Jason Gedrick, and Josh Charles, and growing up in Detroit. And it was really an era. And and I got it made. and, And like I said, Katzenberg and Eisner liked it. So they gave me a big deal at Disney 
which that and it, you directed that one though that was I good. directed the second one uh, it became crossing the bridge and how did you how did you like learn how to direct you don't you just <laughs> you just bullshit you yeah. just bullshit you yeah. know I you mean, get a good ad I was on the set of the Coupe de Ville and yeah. I watched Joe Roth and I thought if this guy can do it I can do it <laughs> right you know and 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 I got a good ad and I got a, Bobby was a good producer yeah he had, he had worked with first time directors and he yeah. got me a really great I mean my DP the director of photography was a guy named Tom Siegel who went who right, the up, good DP that's important he became Thomas Newton Siegel yeah and then and he became a big time DP he's a he, he is a big time well DP. those are the guys that really like as a director I don't know why I was saying AD but the DP He's the guy where you go, well, this is what I want. And he's like, all right, we can do it from here and from here, right. and then we'll do that. Right. One. Okay, That's right. good. That's good. right. So the truth is, you can direct if you admit you don't know what you're doing. Right. And that's what Bobby and Sharon Bialy, my first casting director, who's still direct casting every movie I've ever done, they said, don't pretend you know what you're doing. Just ask for help. And so I did, and I just made the movie. And then this Indian summer, we went back up to my old summer camp, and you know, and uh, Sam Raimi, who was a kid in my cabin, played was one of the stars of the movie, and and it was really, it was just again, I spent the first few you, years just recreating my life, you know, in, sure. in sequence. That Sam Raimi was a childhood friend of yours. Oh yeah, Sam and I were friends when we were, since we were little kids. We still are to this day. You know, he's one of my best friends. You he's know? a good director. Yeah, he's a good director. Do you guys talk about that stuff? About what's directing? Yeah, we talk about how much more successful he is than I am, how much more money he has. <laughs> you know, but you're still friends. That's good. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a you know. Yeah. I, I you know, and he was great in the movie. He, yeah. He played a this weirdo uh, maintenance guy that we we kind of knew. He was aping a guy we knew. Oh, really? he was brilliant. You know, him and Alan Arkin did these incredible physical scenes together and that must have been amazing working with Arkin at you know just second time you know second time out directing and well I worked with he was in my first movie that, that I wrote Coupe the, de oh, Ville he was in Coupe de Ville he's in Coupe de Ville and he was in Indian Summer he's hilarious he's man. hilarious he's, a, he's an incredible guy and um, so anyway by that point I had to say okay you know what happened was I got another HBO special out of my special, uh, a one night stand they wanted me to do, you know, and and I got a gig opening for I believe the Pointer Sisters at Caesar's Palace, uh-huh. and at the same time I was prepping this movie, you know, and and I, I did the one night stand and I did Caesar's Palace, but there was a, a it's funny and and the one night stand I shot it in. In Chicago, they would do two one-night stands and one right. night at these little concert clubs. Was it an hour or a half hour? It was a half hour. Yeah, right. So Ellen DeGeneres did a half hour and I did a half hour. And I just, I just between that and then I had to go back to Vegas and then I had to go and prep this movie and it was too much. It was, I was stressed out. And, yeah. And again, I didn't want to drink, you yeah. know. So I, something had to go. So I, I, the last stand-up I ever really did, other than a benefit with Jay for Charlie Hill, the last stand-up I ever did in my life was Caesar's Palace. You know, I played yeah. Caesar's Palace with the Pointer Sisters, and and it was good. And I did that one hour, that half-hour HBO thing, and I just said, okay, you know, I, 
I'm not that good at it. You know, I mean, I, I'm basically doing the same act I always was. And if I go with the movies, I think I have a chance to really, you know. Be creative. Be creative and do a new thing every yeah. year. And I made a conscious decision. And I was probably 28 or 29 years old at the time. And I just, I never did it again, you know. And I, I it was such a big part of my life that I thought it was going to be hard to quit, you know. Because it becomes a drug that need to get up every night. Exactly. Did you get up? Did you get up? I'm going out. Can I get up? Yeah. You know, and to the point of years later, I'd go into comedy clubs. Yeah. And I'd be sitting in the back and the, someone would come up and go, uh, the owner wants to know if you want to get up. I'd go, uh, no. no. <laughs> I'd say, I'm just, you know, I, do you want to get up? You want to get up? You know, you know yeah. and, and I just, I was like, no. I really, it, when, when you get far enough away from it, it's alien again to get on stage. So sure. there, and, and probably and, terrifying. Well, the other thing that really became great was I would go to see comedy shows even in that quick time after I quit and go, yeah, he's funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, I wish I did. That's a good joke. Yeah. And, but after a couple of years, I'd be there laughing my ass off with the crowd. And I forgot how great it was to love comedy. Right. <laughs> you get Be- cynical, yeah. Because, you know, you know, I remember some of the magician friends I had, they, they just watch it and look at how the trick's done, you yeah. know? And that's what happens, you know? And I got back into this thing where I'm a great audience member. Yeah. I laugh my ass off at a funny comedian. Yeah. And I got that back. Oh, that's you a know? gift. There's a, you know, so... You know, again, so by the time I was 30, you know, I was making a movie every year. Yeah. I was... I was doing things, and I, I didn't miss it at all, and, and it was also, I guess really the only stand-up that I stayed really good friends with was Tim Allen and Dave Coulier, yeah, because they were Detroit guys, you know? How's Tim doing? Tim's doing really good. Good. Yeah, we just went down to the opening of the Broad together. Oh, how was that place? Beautiful? It's beautiful, yeah. Eli Broad is my godfather. He is? He's, yeah, he's from Detroit, too, and he's he was my dad's best friend growing up all his whole life, and and so I know him very well. And know. he's still around? He's still around, yeah. And, he, and he, this is his collection? Yeah. Is that and the he, idea? He basically gave a billion-dollar gift to the city of Los Angeles. Did he live out here? He lived out here for many years. He still does. And he was friends with your your father growing up? Yeah. And so he's got this. So you knew you knew a lot of the, the art from his house? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've known... I've. I've tr- I know them very well. I've traveled with them, and yeah, and I mean they're very they're part of our family, you know. And do you you have kids? Yeah, I do. How many? I have a twenty one year old son and a twenty two year old daughter. Wow. Yeah. From uh, are you married to the same yeah, mom? Same mom. I've been married to the same woman for twenty eight years. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, congratulations yeah, on that. Thanks. Yeah, it's great. I've been sober thirty one years. That's incredible, man. And, um, you know, I met her at the bank where the comedy store writes the checks on. And I'd come in all messed up. and To cash the check? Cash the check. And, you know, you know, uh, can I see the manager's bullshit? What are you bouncing <laughs> my checks for? And then this, this 20-year-old blonde manager would come over. She was so hot. Yeah. But she was such a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to call her the bitch at the bank. Yeah. You know, and. And I actually moved to another branch because this woman was so hard on me. Yeah. And I, I just had this total crush on her, but she was, but I was a screw up. Yeah. I was a screw up. I mean, I, I was 
all my checks were for ninety dollars to the same person. Right. Figure that out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And Domino's Pizza. Right. That was it. <laughs> yeah. And she would look through these and she go, "Mr. Binder, you know, you got to keep money in your account if you're writing these checks." And she could just see. She knew. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And I got sober, and uh, I ran into her at an AA meeting. Uh-huh. And she had been sober a few years longer than me, and. And she she just knew me as a deadbeat at the bank, but she goes she was like, I am so glad you got sober, <laughs> and we started dating, and yeah. and I married the bitch at the bank, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's sweet. Yeah, it's great. It's great. But like these, like the number of movies you made is pretty astounding to me. I mean, you made a lot of movies, and then yeah, you did this and, series. And a couple of them are good. No, no, I, I no. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I. I really had to flounder because I didn't have any training and I didn't really, all I knew was Woody Allen and those guys, you know, but, you know, it's been a real great experience making movies because it's like having, doing an, an hour and then you get it and you, you get it done and then you start over with nothing again every year. You right. Know? But, but like the, like the directors I've talked to and like the, the process of it, it's, you know, the, you, you're all in for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it, Listen, some of them take five, six years to get made, and yeah. some of them, I write a lot of scripts and a lot of them, but but by the time you know you're going to make it, you're in all in for a year. Now, it's a year. When you do, like, I, did, you wrote, uh, you wrote Blank Man? No, I didn't. Blank Man was an aberration. It's the only movie I've ever done that I didn't write. You just directed it? Yeah, and Damon and I were friends from the comedy store. And He used to be so good, didn't he? He still is. Yeah. He still is, man. He's just, he's a great stand-up used, comic. When man. I was a doorman there, he would come in and just do this free-form shit. Oh, he was, he was brilliant. And, and it, it, what happened was after Indian Summer, I had gotten... Disney wanted me to do another movie, and it was that weekend... I ran into Damon at the theater. He was there watching the movie. And yeah. He said, you want to do this Blank Man? And it was like a Batman parody. Yeah, yeah, I remember. And I loved Batman growing up. And Sam had just done Dark Man, which, right. you know. And so I said, yeah. And my agent, Jim Burke, at the time said, this is going to kill your career. And I said, it's not my movie. I'm producing a friend's, it's like a producing a friend's album. Yeah. How could, how, why, why am I going to, if it doesn't do well, it's his fault. Right. But, and I said, I, I, we're going to make it funny as hell. He said, it's going to kill you. And Jeff Katzenberg, he had Jeff Katzenberg call me and said, don't do this. Don't do, and I said, look, I want to work with Damon. And I gave him a year in my life. It was the best year. Comedy, we got, he, David, Alan Greer and I, we laughed our ass off. We made a movie that, tested through the roof that Sony thought was going to be a huge hit and Damon was really funny in it and it was a really good version yeah. of that thing and a Batman spoof and um, it bombed Yeah, and I, I couldn't get a movie made for three years <laughs> it, it killed my career and my agent was I told you so you know did he stay your agent yeah <laughs> and then you come back with the, one of your own movies or no? Yeah, no, then I made a little small little movie. I had to kind of reinvent myself. I made this little movie called Sex Monster mm -hmm. with myself as the star and, and, and Meryl Hemingway. I, I made it for $600,000. Yeah. And um, that kind of got me going again. You know. And Did anyone go see it? You, I don't know if anyone went and saw it, but it, it, I don't even think it was released. I think HBO bought it as well. It went up. It, to the Aspen, uh, Com yeah, comedy yeah. and arts festival, right, and yeah. it won best picture, 
and I won Best Actor, and Chris Albrecht said, you got to do a show for us, which became Mind of the Married Man. Yeah, I like that so show. So they bought that movie, and they bought the show, and so that's what it, it never really, it never really was in theaters, but it, it helped me a lot, and it changed my, you know, it, it kind of moved me to another air direction, and I worked on the show, which to me was just little movies, you know. Yeah. And I had total creative control. And what happened to that? What? How many you did? What? Two, two seasons? seasons. Yeah. With Bobby Slayton. Bobby Slayton was great. In he it. was great in it. Yeah. He still wishes it was going. Slayton. Yeah. He sent me the funniest thing when when it, when the show got canceled. He wrote me a note. Binder, thanks for having me in your show. In retrospect, a little more of me, a little less of you, we'd still be on the air, Slayton. <laughs> what happened with that show? I don't know, you know? I mean, the show was a little snake bit from the get-go, you yeah. know? I mean, we aired Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Okay. I was on the air. We were in New York. We had a, a premiere party September 10th in New York City. In the morning I got up on 2000, on September yeah. 11th, and I go on. I'm sitting with Diane Sawyer on the air, showing clips from the the show that airs tonight. Yeah, and she's in the middle of my interview. She says, "Excuse me, but we're going to break away to a news thing now." And it, the news is Charles Gibson saying that a small plane's hit the World Trade Center. You, you were know? on the air on a panel yeah. on a show on AB, and Good Morning they, America before Not, they knew what was happening. Really. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and. Yeah, they actually still show that interview on the on the anniversaries of. Uh, oh, really? Of, for ABC, Good Morning America, would they take you back and show you? And Diane Sawyer, you know. So the show came out, and you know, it was one of those things that was supposed to be a male sex in the city, and it was very real. But a lot of women had problems with it, and a lot of guys had problems with it. You know, You're like why it, are you talking about it? Yeah, and there was that. When why are you talking about it? And this ain't or the other group was this ain't that ain't me. That ain't yeah. this is puerile. This is in juvenile. Yeah, and you know, it's like what I learned from that show because we did good work. You yeah. know, it was really good actors, and Bruce Paltrow directed it, and I mean, it was we did good. A married man, white man's sexuality is the third rail of American comedy. In fact, any married man. Yeah. You know, Chris Rock did this thing, I think I love my wife. I went, you're dead. Yeah. I ran into him at a premiere of one of my movies. He told me that was the title. I said, change that title and that movie's not going to work. Because <laughs> women don't want to see a movie about a married guy that wants to fuck someone other than their wife. Right. And they don't want, that. you can't go, you don't go with, in packs with your friends to see that and the wives don't go, oh, that he just wanted to go see that movie where, with the guys all fuck masseuses. Yeah. They don't, They don't, whereas we, don't, guys go, okay, Sex in the City movie, you guys all went and you had fun and, and, the, and right. the girls all got laid by studs, that's fine. You, yeah. you, that's, just come home on time, you yeah. know? We don't care. Yeah. But guys would tell me, I have to pretend I'm asleep when my wife walks in the room when mine and the Mary's on, oh, man so, yeah. is on, couldn't, or else we're going to get in a fight talking about, do you think that way? Do you, you know? So, no shit, so it couldn't go either way. Yeah, so it's it's just not a, you know, and just in general, anytime you've tried to do that kind of, anyone who does that kind of horny men thing, you know? So we were, you know, listen, our ratings were really good, you know, and 
some people liked us and some people hated us, you know, and it was also as a time at HBO that they really started getting into star fucking and they 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 had want, they bought some really expensive shows. So they didn't have the money to do a third season, but they hired me to write it. And I went off and did Upside of Anger. Was that the one with Kevin Costner? Yeah. That did all right, yeah, right? Yeah, it did very well. Yeah. I, I really, and you were in it? Yeah, yeah. Did, did you play a sleazy guy? Yeah, I played a sleazy guy. With a mustache? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. funny, yeah. That's right. And, um, and, you know, when I came back, Chris was like, okay, maybe we should do a third season. And he hemmed and hawed, and I started this movie with... Uh, Ben Affleck called Man About Town. And by the time that was done, you know, they take a year. It just, it was too far away. You know, a lot of the actors had series. And so that's what happened. You know, it just, it was one of those shows that either you loved it or you hated it. And the people that hated it were really loud about hating it. Men and women. Yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of our biggest problems were men sure. reviewers. Why don't you, you know? yeah, keep your mouth shut? It wasn't that. There were a few of those, but there were a lot of these guys that just, you know, that don't have that camaraderie with other guys, and they don't sit around and talk about pussy. And, yeah. Guys don't talk like that. And yeah. this is This is this is just his, you know, this, these are sick guys, you know? And the truth is, a lot of guys do, guys would, I would be out running. Yeah. And I'd see a guy park a car, he'd pull me over, and he'd run alongside me and go, dude, you're giving away all the secrets, right. you know? <laughs> and and I had more guys, you know, tell me that. And and I also found it to be a good Rorschach test. Uh-huh. The people, when, when I would run into a married couple and they watched it and liked it, and there were a lot of them. Yeah. I always knew they had a good marriage. Right. You know, because yeah. my wife, she didn't understand. She'd go, what? Why are people? Why do women get so upset? You don't. You think I don't know that he thinks like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. think I don't know the way these guys behave when we're not around? Yeah, you know. So, anyway, it was. Uh, you know, listen. It should have. It should have gone longer, but it was perfect for me because it was time for me to move on again. You know, it was like I say, upside of anger really helped me out a lot, and then I. I made this movie with Ben Affleck, and then I made Rain Over Me with Adam Sandler. That was a 9-11 movie. That was a, more or less a 9-11 movie. Aftermath. It was, it was like about, about a story of what happened three years later. And it had to do with the fact that I was there that night and on the streets with people covered with dust and sitting around telling stories on curbs about what they'd seen. And then I came back about a year and a half later with my family, and I thought, man... Because there were some people that night walking the streets of 2001 that were, you could tell, you just look at them and go, their lives are ruined. Someone, they lost somebody. They were just, they were just mumbling. Yeah, I was so, in, I lived in Astoria then. It was devastating. Of the weeks after with the pictures everywhere. It was the, devastating. The smell and the, ugh. So about a year and a half later, I was there and I thought, I wonder, there are probably some people still wandering these streets that that night never ended for. And I just wrote this piece, and I wasn't going to do it with Tom Cruise and Javier Bardem. And Tom wanted to do it, and Javier wanted to do it, and whatever happened, it ended up Adam Sandler and Don Cheadle, which was fine. And, and we had a great time um, making it, and it was a very tough movie, and we showed it to the surviving families of the groups, and yeah. they loved it. And, and um, Adam was really quite good in it, you know? And yeah. It, 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 you know, it... With anyone else in it, it would have been 
people would say it did really good. You know, it made yeah. 24, 25 million dollars. I make my movies small. Yeah. But Adam's uh, 24, 25 million dollar Adam Sandler movie is a bomb, you know? But it was a different type of movie for him. Yeah, yeah, and he knew and he knew that, but he took it so personal. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. um I mean, I was just talking to this about somebody because I think he was really good in all those kind of movies he did, but because none of them were big box office bonnet, you know, hits, yeah. hits, he kind of turned back to his, the you know, Jack shit. and Jill and yeah, yeah. Zardoz and, yeah. you know, whatever that, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and I think he just said, fuck it, I'm safe here and this is what my fans want and, and I think he could really have been like, Tom Hanks. I think he's that's how talented that guy is. Yeah. You know, he's really he he really didn't want to go that direction. Hmm. And by the time he did, he tried a few other things they just didn't they didn't work, you yeah. know. Yeah. And that so that movie did all right. It was a little heavy. I remember I didn't I didn't see it because it I was did, I it, thought it was heavy. It did all right. <laughs> it, did, I, it did all right, but it, the interesting thing about all these movies and it's, I'm sure not just my movies, but they have these incredible afterlifes now. Yeah. So it's almost like a book, and and the 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 audience, the theatrical release is just a way to get the publicity out. I mean, I just did this movie Black or White with Kevin Costner, which I think between Canada and uh, and America did twenty five million dollars at the box office. And we right. made it for seven, but what's it it's doing so well on Netflix and iTunes and Amazon uh-huh. people are coming up to me all the time talking about that movie so and it'll be around forever you know I got right. a text last night from some guy said I watched the movie and then we went and rented Upside of Anger you know so in the old days you didn't have that right. you know if the movie didn't work the movie didn't work and right. maybe it would play on HBO late at night or or you know but now the movie comes out and it, within a month it's going everywhere around the world and people can watch it on their big screens at home and I mean we've made a lot more money on black or white than we made at the box office already in television isn't that amazing you know? yeah so that they, they have they, the whole paradigm is shifting and, and it just kind of and it didn't it didn't lose money but it seems like none of your movies, they they seem to none do of my all movies right. ever lose money. Yeah, because again, I made that movie for nine million dollars. Louisiana gave us two million back. Kevin put up most of the money. Kevin and I own that movie. Yeah, you know, he obviously owns a lot more than I do, but we own the movie forever. You yeah. know, and and you know, it's just a new. You're as you say, a paradigm. And believe me, within a blink, within at the most two years, movies will come out same date, same place, everywhere in the world everywhere you can buy a movie just like an album yeah you know beyonce puts out an album you can buy it anywhere you want, right, anywhere right, right. in the world yeah. online but a movie there's still this antiquated distribution where it doesn't come to canton ohio for six months yeah and it doesn't go to to belgrade yeah and it doesn't you know belfast for three years sometimes yeah. and that's the internet has made the world so small but you're not hung up on the theater experience? I'm not it? at all. No, no, not one bit. I mean, people, I like the idea that eventually a movie will come out in the theater and you can go that opening weekend or for the opening weekend, you can pay a premium and watch it on iTunes yeah. for 49 bucks, right. you know? With the but, family. With the family. Which would be a, about a night. Yeah, a little you bit, know? yeah. And 
then eventually that price will come down and it'll come out of the theaters. But it, it'll open in the whole world, and you can watch it on your iPad or your phone anywhere, you anywhere, anytime. And that's where we're getting to. And for me, I have no. I, honestly, I I can tell you that I've had great experiences in my sitting room with my wife and kids watching movies that are just as good as going out to the theater. Uh-huh. And then I like to go to the theater sometime. But it, it really has nothing to do w- with the size of the movie or how... Sure. It, it really is, you know, sometimes... What's your work ethic, man? Because like you, like, you know, I talk to writers and I got my own problems with writing, but it seems like you can't help yourself. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I didn't know what we were going to talk about and I knew we were going to talk about movies and comedy, but then you send me a book. You write yeah, a novel. I have a novel coming out February 1st. Is that your first Kong. novel? Yes, yeah, my first novel. You just can't, you can't stop I, working. No, it's really sad. It's, well, no, it's not. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good compulsion to have. It's really funny. Look. I went to Aspen this weekend for this com- this Charlie Rose uh, yeah. weekend that he has. And I, I got, was lucky enough to fly in a private plane on the way back with these people. And I, after about 20 minutes, I said, I'm going to go back and write. And the guy who's a builder... Said, yeah, you did that on the way out here. I said, yeah. He goes, are you under some heavy deadline? I went, no, I'm a neurotic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I have to write every day. Yeah, you do. You know? Yeah, that's a fucking gift. It's a gift. I've, I've really, you know, it's been a great gift for me. It's first of all, I mean, it's a God-given gift. I, I really, I don't take it for granted. Yeah, and that I always have an idea. Yeah. I, oh, I've never run out of ideas. Well, that's a lot like Woody Allen. I've always had, I have so many scripts in the drawer that I finished and I'll do a re, another rewrite. And I write every day. And you like it. I do, I love it. I love it, I write every day. It's a little bit of a torture because it's like, some, sometimes it's like a, a shit that won't come out. You right. know, you just gotta squeeze, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's you gotta really work it, you know? And sometimes they come out like, just, you know, like black or white. I had that, idea in my head for eight years it was based on a true story that tangentially affected my life and the fact that uh, my wife had this nephew a biracial guy kid named sean who we just loved whose mother died and he had us up in santa monica his family up there and the family down in in uh, South Central, and I always thought that'd be a great story to tell, uh, you know, a little kid, and I thought, do a custody battle, which we didn't have, and it rolled around in my head for years, and then when I went to write it, it took three weeks, and Costner just went, okay, we're doing it this summer, you know, and 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 sometimes they come out like that, and sometimes it, it's, it's a struggle, but I always have an idea, I always... And I get up every morning, you know, I get up and I have some quiet time and some prayer and meditation and, and I get it together, you know, and I I spend three to four hours writing and and it's noon. Yeah. You know, and then I'm done. You right. know, and and um you know, and then I, I you know, I, I put some serious time into masturbation. Sure. Which which yeah. makes sense. You gotta keep that yeah. those two that's, things. That's what keeps you young, ask Ernest <laughs> Borgnine. You know? Yeah. But but um no, you know, I mean I have the whole day basically yeah. and business stuff. Unless I'm shooting. I don't write when I'm shooting. Do you have a movie in the works now? I do. I'm I'm actually uh, I have two movies in the works, but I I have this novel coming out yeah. called Keep Calm, and it's a thriller. It's a thriller, and 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 I'm making a movie with New Line, 
with Chuck Rovin and Alex Gartner at Atlas are producing it. And these are the guys that did The Dark Knight. And, Who's and, that? Who you got signed up for stars? Well, we're, we're just putting it together now, uh-huh. so I don't want to say. It sounds like a big movie. It is a big movie. It's like a $60 million action film. Holy and shit. So it's different for That's me. That's the biggest movie you've done, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's big. and But it's also, the book is a real departure for me. The book is, it's an American who's at number 10 Downing Street and a bomb goes off and he's framed for it and he realizes right away once it goes off, that's why I was invited because he's got a past that yeah. would say they're going to bl- make him a suspect. They're going to blame right. on me and now before tonight, by the end of the night, they're going to kill me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They're gonna, and then they're just going to be this guy, this nut did it. Right. And so it's him trying to figure out how to stay alive while a young inspector in SO16, which is the anti-terror, yeah. this young girl is chasing him across England because she knows he didn't do it. And she knows there's something behind it. So you could get a real action guy for this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I will. And and, and, and the, 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 the young woman inspector, Steele, is a great character, which it's going to be uh, a trilogy. I've already got the th- all three stories. It's a newborn identity. Yeah, and the girl... It be- so the guy's become- going to run for three... Uh- no, 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 he doesn't run for three years. He, oh. he, gets, to, he gets to sit down for a minute. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, it's... And, so I'm working on that, and, you know, I just I'm just really lucky, like you say. I've always got... The next thing coming out, and uh, I just wrote a script for Reese Witherspoon based on a book that she loved called Napkin Notes. Now, she reached out to you? I think she did, yeah. It's amazing to me, because like, the reason like I like to talk about, about comedy and just about your place in my mind is that, you know, you... You lock people in, and I think that's sort of the the fear of of staying in comedy on one level, and also how you're perceived. Right. And you know, I talked to a lot of guys that you know started in comedy, but it's it's rare. You're rare that you know went on to do this you know, all these amazing things. And I and I don't think I think I think you have to attach some of it to the introduction into show business is through comedy. That's right. You yeah, know, I it's sort of so. interesting how everyone's going to do their career and how they're going to make the break. You know. I think so, you know, I mean, and by the same token, I just, I've just, it's been an evolving journey for me that I, I would like to now, I actually, I really like writing novels, you know, I'd like to create some television shows, I'm working on uh, Ray Donovan now, you know, and... As what? As a writer. Uh-huh. And um, I'd like to get into that world a You'll little bit. You'll still do staff writing? Or you're doing, you know, you, 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 you're on staff over there? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've never done it, but I'm doing it. Yeah. And um, I did it for about eight weeks on uh, one of Chuck Lorre's sitcoms and realized that I had to get the hell out real fast. Which one? Mom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the writers were brilliant, but, you know, that whole Chuck Lorre world is a piece of work. And Well, do you like writing comedy? No. Right. No, I didn't like I didn't like that, but they were geniuses. Yeah. They were, they were incredible. And, and um and uh, so when they called me about Ray Donovan, I was first like, oh, I already tried this. But I love the show. And, and I thought, okay, this is a little bit more in the type of show I would create if I did a show. Right. But, but you know, so I just see it as evolving to the books and, the, and, the, and more movies. And, you know, eventually, you know, I, I just, I don't want to stay at one place. And it might have, I probably would have been more successful if I just did one thing over and over again with Maybe. one kind of movie or whatever. But by the same token, you know, 
it's really hard for me to do something unless I love it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, it's a horrible thing to be part to be have to do something. Well, it's not why we signed up for this. Also, and when I'm looking at you, you know, you've created this whole world for yourself and yeah. you've created your show and you do your stand up and you just do your own shit. Yeah. And for me, I'm better off just doing my own shit. Right. You know? Yeah. And and so it just makes sense. But I can't do it unless it's like, okay, yeah. I, I, I'm really into this. I'm right. really into this. You right. Know? Yeah. And, and but do you ever get to that point though, where you've gotten yourself into something and you, you're just overwhelmed? Like it, it sounded to me like when you had to let go of comedy, there's that time where you just you just stretch too thin, and yeah. you just got to you got to pick it. There's only so much bandwidth. I yeah, don't care I who you are. Right. I don't right. care who you are, and and that's why I think guys like Woody Allen have been really smart. And, you know, it's really funny. I'm friends with Albert Brooks. You yeah. Know, we, we go I'll tell him to come on the we show go, already, will you? He's never coming on the show. All right. But we go for walks. I'm no offense, but he just... He, he doesn't like to talk about himself. Yeah. yeah. You know, he we go for walks in the neighborhood. And he's very smart. You know, yeah. I say, why aren't you doing another Albert Brooks movie? And Netflix, Amazon, anyone would let you make a movie. I'm concentrating on the acting thing. Yeah. I, you know, he understands he's only got so much bandwidth. You right. Know? And, and um, I've come to those places in my life, and, and uh, I one of the things that I've been good at is when you, I get a green light and I start a movie, that's all I work on right. for, for the duration of the movie. You know, when I get back and I'm in the editing room, I'm writing something else. But while I'm making the movie, while I'm shooting it, while I'm casting it, you know, it, that's what I do, you know. So yeah. you have to you have to really put blinders on, yep. you know. Yep. Well, you're making a good living in show business. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, I will tell you also that I had almost five years where I didn't make a dollar in show business in the middle of my- After Blank Man? No, no. I had three years then. And then I got on a roll, but after um, after Rain Over Me, I didn't make a movie for five years. What'd you do? Wrote? Did you think about going I, back to comedy? I did a lot. No, I opened <laughs> up a hot dog joint on Sunset Boulevard. You did? I did that. That was fun. <laughs> but then that was fun. Did but, it stay open? No, it was open for a couple of years. Detroit style? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Next to the Whiskey A Go Go, it was called Coney Dog. Oh yeah, but but then I realized that this is just me hiding, you know. Yeah, and um, so it was voluntary. You didn't do the movie. You didn't. Work? No, no, it was a combination of every time I would get a movie together, the financing would fall apart. Uh -huh. The the world changed for. It was the strike came, so yeah. I, I used to make a lot of money writing scripts for other people. Uh -huh. Like I wrote a movie for Julia Roberts, and I wrote. For Bob Zemeckis, and that went away. And the kind of movies that I made, dramedies, there was no market for them for a while. Whereas they're still hard, but at least now, you know, you make a movie for seven to ten million dollars with a movie star, and it's you know that Netflix or Amazon or HBO or Showtime or someone is going to buy that thing. You're never going to lose money. It's like a it. buffer. But there was four or five years where that buffer wasn't there the yeah. dvd went away right right the dv you know when i did upside of anger that movie might have made 25 million dollars at the box office but it probably made 70 million in dvd right because every 
guy or woman, you know, Joan Allen, Kevin Costner. Yeah, I saw that movie. I could buy it for $19 yeah. and, and watch it forever or have it in my living room. Right. And it was at every store and everything. And it sold like crazy. Yeah. But that went away. Right. So until the Netflix and the, and the Amazon and the iTunes came, picked up again, there was no second. Right market for my kind of movies so did you get depressed oh yeah get depressed uh, it was a very dark period in my life but you know without you know booze yeah. no no but without you know i mean i i was lucky because i'm sober and i really have a very strong faith in god very yeah. strong faith and and it, you know i thought this is a time in my life and i was 50 years old yeah i thought this is either going to kill me and oh, i'm going to start having an affair or I'm going to start drinking again, or I'm going to gain 40 pounds, or I'm going to go somewhere and run away. Yeah. Or I'm going to just stay here and figure it out and keep writing every day and kind of turn inward and really find out who I am. Not to say it was just some brave, you know, I wasn't, you know, but you really find out who you are during tough times. And I remember a couple of the young guys or younger guys that I work with in AA. They'd say, "Man, I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't. If I couldn't. If I went broke, because I, I lost. A, I built a mansion. I lost it. I, I mean, I, I lost so much. Uh-huh. Uh, property wise, physical wise, yeah. but I gained so much because I really learned that I was okay with nothing as long as I was writing and as long as I was a really good guy and kept I, your family together. Kept my family together. You know, I had I." Picked up a lot of AA commitments. Yeah. I had a meeting that I ran, and and I was the doorman or the chi- or the greeter or the yeah. chip guy. So I had to be at a meeting every day, and and I really kind of I'd spent a life where where my career and how successful I was was the most important thing, and I was forced to for five years. Just how good a guy I was each day that became the most important thing. Wow, and. I had a sense that it was going to swing back for me. I really did. I really had a sense that it would swing back and I'd have an even more successful period in my life if I didn't melt down during Fuck this it period. All up. You know? Yeah. And it was really hard. Five years is a long time. Yeah. Especially when from the time I was 18, uh, I always did something. I always had a show, a movie, or this or that going every year. Yeah. You know, I. I wasn't as successful as Woody Allen, but I had the same life as him. I was yeah. constantly casting, shooting, editing, going, uh-huh. and then it just went away, you know? But uh, it, I look at it now as a really, it was as what I needed more than anything, because I think the work, not that the work is deeper, because I think that's a cliche, but the work is clearer. You right. Know, what I, you know, if I'm writing a thriller, I know exactly what, I, what I'm writing, and... I, I kind of my a lot of the reviews and the stuff that I could take some constructive criticism was that some of my movies didn't know what they wanted to be, you know. And now you're clear on that. And I bet you're clear on who your friends are too. Yeah, that's so true. That's really true. I mean, you know, my best friends are one's a dentist and one's a home builder. You yeah. Know? I mean, you really realize that the guys in the business. They're, they can't help but be affected by the price of your stock. And you don't want them to be, but they are, you yeah. know? Yeah, and the funny thing is, is like I said at the beginning, you know, I thought you were fucking hilarious. 
Oh, thanks. And and it was like, you know, like I can still remember. You had such a, as a stand-up, you had such a confidence and such a, like, there was something, you know, completely uh, fresh and like, you know, it was just... It was just yeah, that's what I had. I had I had a poise that my talent didn't quite get to know, you uh-huh. know? I mean, I just was. I was comfortable on stage. Yeah. Because I wanted to be on there so bad as a yeah. young guy, and yeah. and um, and especially when I was sober, I I, I really had looked like a f- a fifty year old in a in a eighteen year old's body doing a real polished act, <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't fresh. It wasn't there was no there was no right. there was no you, unique point of view to right, it. Right. It was just me doing jokes, jokes yeah. you know. And and as soon as I realized that, I said, "Okay, it's time to right. hang this up." But 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 just in terms of my personal life, I think that you were one of the guys I saw, and I'm like, you know, people do this. You can do this. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I appreciate that. Well, I remember. When I started, and my dad would say, "You really gonna be a comedian?" Yeah. And I'd say, "Look, Dad, let me do, let me just show you something." And I showed him, like, uh, Billy Braver on the Tonight Show. I do you know Billy Braver? I had him in here. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, I said <laughs> with his lunchbox. I saw. Yeah, I said this guy. You've never heard of him, but he's making a living. Yeah. And then I showed him Tom Dreesen. I yeah. Said, this guy goes out. There are hundreds and hundreds of guys around this country that are making, doing great as comedians. It's you. You think because you don't know of them that I'm going into this horrible business, but you're wrong. Yeah. You know. Did so, he finally believe you? He did. Yeah. Yeah. My dad came to love comedians. He opened up a comedy club in Fort Myers, Florida. He did. Yeah, called the Bijou Comedy Club and. He really, as an when he was retired, you know, he 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 financed it. Put it this way, uh-huh. you know, and, and and all the guys, Seinfeld and Tim Allen, and so many guys came and played. And, and my, he was a great out of respect guy. for you. No, no, no. Just it was because? a good gig. Yeah, it was a good gig. Yeah. It was in Fort Myers, Florida, and and my dad would take them boating. My dad had a fishing boat and. He would call me up and go, Mike, I'm here with Tim Allen. Mike, I'm here with Jerry Seinfeld, you know? And, yeah. and, um, and they liked him. Uh-huh. And he loved, he, he you know, his, through his friendship with Leno and, and through me, he really learned to love comedians. And, huh. You know, my dad, he, he died young. He had an accident, you know, and he, at 72, he had a bad fall and, uh-huh. and it was dead eight days later, you know? But he was a great guy, and, and, and he really, through me, learned to understand, you know, even long after I was out of comedy, yeah. he was friends with comedians, and he loved comedians, and he really understood what not only what a tough life it is, but what a unique skill set it is, uh-huh. you know? And, and he would call me up and say, you've got to see this kid... You know Bill Hicks. Yeah, yeah. God, I said, yeah, I know Bill Hicks, Dad. You know, what I mean, <laughs> you, you know. Did he ever bother you to get back in it? No, no. no he knew. He knew that I was making movies, and he yeah. liked that too. He oh, liked good. to come on the sets, and you know, he liked to uh, pal around with Kevin Costner, and sure, and and, and you know, yeah. Don, I, I had this movie. With Donald Sutherland was in one of my movies, and that made my dad happy. You know, oh, that's sweet, man. That's sweet. And you work with your brother. Yeah. Yeah. My brother, not anymore. We're doing our own things now. He's, my brother's actually producing the biography of Dionne Warwick's life. Wow. But you got a good relationship with him. Yeah. Great relationship. It just, 
you know, I mean, you can only work with for your big brother so many years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big brother. I don't know. It's not easy being a little brother. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, and at a certain point. Yeah. Plus, it was very conveniently timed to the time when I stopped getting work. <laughs> he was like, hey, man, what, what's your next movie? Because if not, I'm, um, I'm on my own. You know, and he's gone on. He's done very well, actually. And so have you, man. I really appreciate you talking to me, buddy. I'm really glad I came. It was great. Thanks, yeah. Mike. That was pretty cool. That was it. That was me and Mike Binder. It was uh, very exciting to talk to Mike. Got a lot of respect for that guy for a lot of reasons. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Check out the merch. Check out the posters. Check out, you know, the you can get on the mailing list. You can comment there through Facebook so I know who you are. So you're not just a maggot among maggots. Yeah, there won't be one of those people. Cyber maggots. Internet's full of them.